Jason Reynolds is an American author who writes novels and poetry for young adult and middle grade audiences. He began writing poetry at nine years old, initially finding his inspiration in rap, and he published several poetry collections before finally publishing his first novel, When I Was the Greatest, in 2014. This won the Coretta Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent, and seven more novels followed in the next four years, including Ghost, which was a 2016 National Book Award finalist for young people's literature, and two more books in what became his New York Times best-selling track series, Patina and Sunny. As Brave As You Are, in 2016, was the winner of the Kirkus Prize, the 2017 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work for Youth and Teen, and the 2017 Schneider Family Book Award. He's also published a Marvel Comics novel called Miles Morales, Spider-Man, in 2017. Nicky Gamble met with Jason to talk about his writing life and his latest title, Long Way Down, a novel in verse which was named a new Brianna book, a Prince Honor book and best young adult work by the Mystery Writers of America's Edgar Awards. I wonder just to start uh, whether you could just introduce yourselves to our audience, tell them a little bit about who you are and how you came to be a writer. My, my sort of path to being a writer isn't necessarily the one that is most taken. I, I think I, I, I like to tell people I came through the back door. I was a kid who did not read any books. I was not interested in reading. Because growing up where I grew up and when I grew up, there weren't any books about kids like me. There weren't any books like Long Way Down, um, which is what I would have desperately needed at the time. And so I didn't read. So my, my journey to literature came through studying the lyrics of my favorite rappers at the time. You know, rap music was a very new I'm um, burgeoning music coming out of um, my community. And they felt identifiable and they felt familiar. And so I started to read the lyrics that they were writing. I wasn't just rapping along. I would open up the liner notes. And to all you young teachers, liner notes were pamphlets that came with every album. And I would read uh, the lyrics of the songs. And when you see the lyrics printed, you realize that these 16, 17-year-old rappers were writing poetry and that's what sort of sparked me. Um, that was my entree into this world. And so at the age of 10, 11 years old, I just became obsessed with writing poems. But I, I refused to read until much older. But I, but I was writing a lot. And, um, you know, over time, you grow, hopefully, and you change and you learn things and you study and you practice and you practice and you practice. And, and, and you know, eventually I found my way into prose writing, into novel writing. Um, I've held on to sort of my my poetic tricks uh, you, you keep that sort of a part of your repertoire and I use that now as a way to tell stories I hope we'll touch a little bit more on the music later on and maybe some of, some of your uh, inspirations they're actually named, named in the novel as way of an entry into Long Way Down could you just give us an overview without giving away too much because we want people to read this book but I wonder if you could tell them a little bit just to orientate us towards the book of course, of course Long Way Down is a story of a young man named Will uh, who unfortunately loses his brother Sean to gun violence and Will has to make a decision about whether or not he's going to avenge his brother's death and so the entire story takes place in about 67 seconds of this young man's life um, on an elevator as he goes from his apartment to the ground floor debating about whether or not he is going to make a decision that will change his life forever. It has a very 
arresting opening. Uh, one of those openings that does give you uh, goosebumps when you read it and you realise what lies behind the words. I wonder whether we could start by just hearing some of that. Things that always happen whenever someone is killed around here. Number one, screaming. Not everybody screams. Usually just moms, girlfriends, daughters. In this case, it was Letitia, Sean's girlfriend, on her knees kissing his forehead between shrieks. I think she hoped her voice would somehow keep him alive, would clot the blood. But I think she knew deep down in the deepest part of her downness that she was kissing him goodbye. And my mom, moaning low, not my baby, not my baby, why? Hanging over my brother's body like a dimmed lamppost. Number two, sirens. Lots and lots of sirens howling, cutting through the sounds of the city, except the screams. The screams are always heard over everything, even the sirens. Number three, questions. Cops flash lights in our faces and we all turn to stone. Did anybody see anything? A young officer asked. He looked honest, like he ain't never done this before. You can always tell a newbie. They always ask questions like they really expect answers. Did anybody see anyone? I ain't seen nothing, Marcus Andrews, the neighborhood know-it-all said. Even he knew better than to know anything. It's a book about a young man, and uh, we'll come on to the things that go through his mind as, as we think further into the book. But right at the beginning, we're faced with the women's responses uh, to what's happened to their boyfriend and to their son. I just wondered whether uh, women and men uh, would write about and perceive these issues very differently, whether you have a, a take or a view on that. That's a good question that I don't think anyone's ever asked. And I, I think many women perhaps would have a different take or at least perhaps would write about it differently. I think... Um, there's only one take when it comes to the matter of death in our communities. I think specifically if you're a woman who lives in that environment, you understand the same rules that, that we understand. And everybody knows that these rules exist, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, if a woman were writing this story, though, I think that the way that a woman perhaps would write it is, you know, at the beginning of this book, this kid loses his brother. And the tone of the tone of his voice is that of numbness. He doesn't really actually emote much. He doesn't really, you don't really see him emote until much later on in the novel. Um, but I think if my mother, for instance, were writing this novel as someone who, who has watched and who has experienced some of these things, I think that she would write the child more emotional. Um, I think she would, she would figure out ways to show uh, emotional nuance earlier on in the story. But me, because I have experience with some of this stuff personally, I, I know that it felt like a washing of numbness. I know that it felt like being trapped in a block of ice, being frozen in time. And it's a very different, it's a very different experience. I also wonder what it would have been like if the main character was a woman, right? If Will was not a boy, but instead was a girl, I think that it would change the tone of the story a bit too. I think there would be um, perhaps a little more care taken in terms of the way that she felt about losing her brother, right? It's hard to say. It's hard to know. I think there are a lot of young women who have experienced uh, terrible, terrible things, who have also learned to build up callous, um, to defend themselves, and to continue on with their lives. Sometimes in order to do so, you have to fight back the feeling of it all. 
And, and there are young women that I know for sure feel the same way. So it's, it's hard to know. It's, it, it would depend upon experiences. Men and women aren't, aren't quite that different, especially in moments of trauma. Yes, I think there are no sharp dividing lines. And uh, we have to remember that uh, young women are affected by violence too. And we do have young black women who are being shot okay. in this country. It's not something that just happens to young black men. But I think it is an interesting area to explore. And I know that you had tragedy in your own life um, and were touched by a friend who, who was uh, shot. And I understand that impulse to revenge. It's the first thing that must come flooding into one's mind. I wonder if you could say a little bit about you know, the hope of actually being able to break that cycle, because you have. So there is hope here, and I think we should talk about that. First, I think it's important to note that most people don't know that revenge floods the mind, right? So I'm grateful that you at least understand that it is a natural and human reaction for revenge to flood the mind, right? Like, at the end of the day, I think we all like to... uh, you know, as, as the saying goes, you're never as good as you think you are, and you're also never as bad as they say you are. And, 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 I, and I think about it all the time because we like to believe that we are all walking around as beacons of peace. And the truth is that it's really, really easy to pretend to be that when your peace is never challenged. But the moment your peace is challenged, you realize how there's another part of you. There are, there are many, many chambers of yourself that are never awakened. And once they are, you then have to grapple with that in a very real way. And it's really difficult sometimes. You know, my situation was interesting because the truth is, though I'd like to tell you that I was some mature, responsible child who just knew better, it's not the case. When my friend was murdered, we had planned it out. We were going to try to figure out what to do to, to exact revenge because we knew that there would be no justice otherwise. We were certain, we knew already that the police officers, you know, that's like an unspoken rule, right? That like n- rule number four, don't expect the police officers to find anybody who's done any wrong in our communities. It's not going to happen. Um, at least that's how we felt. And so we went to his mom's house and his mother blocked the door and she begged us to let it go. And because we respected her, because we loved him, we let it go. And I'm grateful that we did because the ice melts. And the pain that you feel in that moment is not a pain that you will carry forever. Of course, the loss you will never get over. But the way that it burns, the weight of it does not last. And, and, and I just think back and think about how awful it would have been uh, had we done what we had set out to do. In terms of just thinking about the idea that you don't have to follow through with it, I think, I think any, anything that we do that is based on impulse is dangerous no matter what it is, right? And I think if we think of our lives that way, anything that you feel immediately, take a breath, take a moment, right? Find somebody who is sober. Find somebody who is not feeling what you are feeling and bounce it off of them. Be ready for them to not understand, but listen to what they may have to say, right? And I I think not just with violence, but with anything in your life, take a moment. It is a healthy thing to do. Your mother was a teacher, Mm. and... Being a teacher myself, <laughs> I, I find it hard to believe that she can't have been part of that influence that must have helped you to see that. My mom is definitely the anchor of everything good about me. And some of that has to do with her life as you know, working in education. But more so than anything, I think it's that my mom also grew up 
in the black American South in the 50s and 60s. We're talking about a lady who has had experiences that I'm never going to have, and she's taken lumps that I'm never going to take. She's had her fair share of licks, and I think she raised us to understand that we were capable of anything that we wanted, that we were expected to treat all people with dignity and respect and and, and, and patience, right? And to understand that it's all of our first times being human, right? There are going to be some mistakes made, you know? She also, as a teacher, and, and, and it's interesting because I think that her raising us benefited her more as a teacher because what she also sort of brings into the classroom is a level of understanding. So now when she's in school and she has a student who is angry or who's frustrated, instead of her immediately disciplining a child, she asks the child, what's the matter? And sometimes that child says, "Ms. Reynolds, I haven't eaten breakfast. I'm hungry. And my mother says, you know, when I'm hungry, I get a little frustrated too. We can fix that. But that takes a certain level of empathy and humility. And she learned that raising children. She sounds amazing, actually. I know that you have visited young people in detention centres. And I'm sure that you give a lot uh, to them. I wonder what they, in return, have done and given to you and, and how you carry that forward uh, in your writing and the work that you do. There are moments, I think, where we all have to remind ourselves there aren't ever moments where children aren't children. And that when we say we love children, when we say we care for them, when we say we will do anything for children and we want to protect children, we have to make sure that we check ourselves to to ensure that we're talking about all of them, not just the ones we feel comfortable around, not just the ones that are most like us, not the ones that are pristine and who haven't made any mistakes, but we also have to love the ones who have made mistakes, love the ones who have been unloved, um, love the ones who are screaming and shouting and clawing at the world. Instead of seeing them as less than, we should see them um, as the potential leaders of this space. If we are willing to truly extend ourselves and love them wholly. When I step into a prison and those young men and young women file into whatever room I'm in, I don't see a gangster. I don't see a criminal. I see a child. I see a child and they constantly, once we start talking, they constantly remind me that they too are children deserving of our love and our attention, our affection, our hope and our grace and our faith that they too will be uh, productive members of our society. And even if they aren't, even if for some reason life presents obstacles in a way that, 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 that for whatever reason they don't seem to make it out of this hole, it is still our obligation to love them. Um, and, and, and that's what they teach me constantly. They remind me that the magic of childhood does not just exist in the perfect spaces, but also in the ones that are a bit more jagged. Uh, I wonder if we could go back into the book now and have a second reading. We're going to move into the elevator uh, with Will and he meets some characters from his past, the first one of whom is is Buck. Uh, And I wonder whether we could just hear that part uh, of the novel. Catching my breath, I asked, So why are you here? I wiped the corners of my mouth, thought, Please don't say you come to take me. Please don't say I'm dead. Please... Actually, he said, doing the bus stop, lean back again. I came to check on my gun. My response. Then finally, in an almost whisper, he added, your tail is showing. 
I put my hand behind my back, felt the imprint of the piece like another piece of me, an extra vertebrae, some more backbone. Thought about moving it to the front, but Sean used to always say dogs, even snarling ones, tuck their tails between their legs, a sign of fear, a signal of bluff. I remember when I gave that thing to Sean, Buck said. He was around your age. Told him he could hold it for me. Taught him how to use it, too. Taught him the rules. Made him promise to put it somewhere you couldn't get it. And I replied with as much tough in my voice as I could. But I got it. And I'm glad I found it. Because I'm going to need it, I explained. Sean's dead now. No need to tiptoe around it. Plus, I figured Buck already knew. Figured dead no dead stuff. Damn, dumb thing to think. Happened last night. Followed him from the store, caught him slipping, gave him two to the chest right outside our building, I said, anger sour in the back of my throat. But I know it was the Dark Suns, Riggs and them. Had to be. Buck folded his arms. I see, he said, shaking his head, his mouth fading into frown. So what you about to do? My eyes turned to razor blades. I'm about to do what I gotta do. What you would have done, I squared. Follow the rules. The elevator rumbled and vibrated and knocked around like the middle drawer, like something was off track. Scared the hell out of me. What's taking this stupid thing so long, I asked, pounding the door as hard as my heart was pounding inside me. This rickety thing has always moved slow, Buck said, grinning. Yeah, but this is ridiculous, I replied, palms wetting. Might as well relax, Buck said. It's a long way down. It certainly is. There's a lot that happens uh, in that lift. And as we meet more of these characters, the significance of Will's name comes to the fore. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about uh, Will and the characters that he meets and uh, whether I've got it right in terms of why I think he was named Will. Will is, I think I got him set at 15, and he is a good kid. He's not sort of of the ilk that everybody else that he's meeting along the way He's not cut from that cloth, you know? He's a nervous kid. He's a, he loves his mother. There's always there's these moments where he talks about watching television with his mom. He loves anagrams. He's a bit of a nerd. He's, you know, he's just a good kid who just loved his big brother. So when thinking about his name, first and foremost, I took it from Shakespeare. Because William Shakespeare was famous for using the word will to mean a whole lot of different things. And so he used will to, rep, to reference himself. Uh, he used will to definitively mean, you know, I will do something or the will to do something. He also used will as a way to talk about sexuality. Um, like will meant several things in, in Shakespearean plays. And so I wanted to fool around with the entendre and, and the multiple meanings one could use for will. In this particular case, it's the, the question of will he or won't he, right? And it's also about the will of a person, of, of, of a young person, right? Because in order for him to navigate this elevator ride without giving too much away, it takes he's going to have to will himself. It takes a certain kind of will in order for him to get through the experience that he's getting ready to have and the experience he potentially may be having next. And, and I thought it was just an interesting sort of thing to use, this name that feels so normal and so colloquial, but it's not. I mean, there are several layers to, to who he is, not just his name, but to who he is as a person, who he is as a character. And I think I was trying to sort of bring that, bring that to the forefront. I'd like to talk a little bit about the art and the um, artistry and the craft of writing this novel because it's not simply a book about an issue. It's a finely wrought um, literary uh, piece of work. 
the verse novel is something that isn't that well known here. We do have a few notable examples, but I think it's much more established in the uh, United States. I don't think it was your first move to think about this as a verse novel. I think somebody suggested that to you. And as I was reading, it just seemed so... I, I, I became aware of how direct the voice was through this kind of writing. Tell me a little bit about writing in verse like this. So you're, so you're right. I, I wrote it in, in vignette first. So it was written in prose vignettes, these little short bursts of, 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 of language. And uh, it didn't work. Um, I, I thought it was working. Uh, my, my wonderful agent said, you know, it's good, but I think this is the opportunity for you to go back in your trick bag, you know, this, this thing that you, that you know so well and that you've learned so long ago, I think this is an opportunity for you to exercise this other skill set. It doesn't work with every novel. Novels in verse are very particular and very specific, and it has to work. If it doesn't, it's, it crashes and it burns miserably. And uh, so I gave it a shot, and it worked out. And the reason why it works out and the reason why it's so important for this novel is because this entire story takes place in a minute. So to write a book that would take somebody a week and a half to read and then to try to convince them that this is a minute of a child's life, it just felt dissonant. Um, and I need to figure out how can I create a story that is urgent and fast-paced and that is moving and that is intense? Um, how can I keep the pages turning? And to do that, um, I needed to exercise the economy of language in a different way and shave down all the words. I also really wanted to fool around with composition as writers, I think we kind of get a little stuck in our ways in terms of what a novel is, what it looks like, what it's supposed to feel like, exposition, rising action, climax, falling action. I think we, we learn all these things in the academy and we kind of just bite down and stick to it. And I think that's a dangerous thing because, believe it or not, this is still art, right? It's creative writing, meaning it needs to be creative. We have so many things we can do. Um, every page is a, is a canvas. And so I wanted to see... What were my possibilities? What could I, how could I stretch out and use language and use the page as part of the story? The page itself, the whiteness of the page is part of the story. How can you do what Hitchcock does in movies on a page? Right? If he can tilt the camera and that can create discomfort in the viewer without him ever having to do anything frightening, then I can spread words out on the page to create discomfort in a reader without me ever actually having to say anything frightening or uncomfortable, right? And I think that's what I wanted to, to figure out. How can I subconsciously manipulate the reader um, to put them in the elevator, to force them to take this ride with Will, to be Will for an hour? Um, and, and, and poetry and verse really allowed me to, to, to do that. I mean, it was a delight to hear you reading in order to experience what you've just talked about there, somebody's going to need to pick this book up and read it because that's the only way you can experience that. But it really guides you. And I think as, you know, uh, the voice comes naturally to you. Obviously, it's not my voice and it's not within my experience. But the way in which it's laid out helps me to read it in that way. I can't escape from that voice. And I just found that, that um, very striking. Maybe if we could probe in on some specific pages and, and think about some of the challenges that, that you had there. Were there any parts of it that provided a particular challenge that you found a way of solving that problem for yourself? So it's interesting, right? There are these, I mean, there are these, these anagrams. The anagram device was a very specific thing that I, that I wanted to use as a way to build bridges 
and create context in an interesting way without having to actually say anything. So for instance, right, you have page 93, which talks about his fear. And he says, I take it back, I was scared. What if he had come to get me, to take me with him? What if he had come to catch my breath, right? And then the very next page is the first anagram. And it says anagram number one, alive equals availed, right? And the beauty of writing this way is that I get to prove to the reader that they're brilliant. Because if you read those two passages, that anagram, it helps to flesh out and to fortify the page before it. You learn something about this kid. It isn't just a random anagram. He's saying he's saying he's afraid. He's saying that he's afraid of death. And then the very next thing is this idea that like to be alive is to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And that he wears a mask of, of pretending he's not afraid when truly he is terrified. And, and it just and the and it happens over and over again in the story. I mean, every single one of of those moments where I insert the anagram, it literally is serving as a device to strengthen and fortify the story for the reader without me having to do any of the work. The reader does all the work. So a prime example is when the next person gets in the elevator without giving anything away, and it's his, it's his uncle, and his uncle's dressed super cool, and his uncle seems like, and he just as he remembers him from the photographs, um, and when he starts to talk to him, he realizes his uncle, and he's happy to see him, but he's a little skeptical of his uncle, because he's like, man, I don't, whoever this guy is, I mean, I recognize him, but like he says, he says, random thought number two, always, always, always. He's skeptical of a person who answers a question by, by asking a question. Usually, usually, usually it's a setup. And then the very next page is an anagram and it says, cool equals loco. Crazy, cool equals crazy. Meaning, and it just says that like, it, it's, it's fortifying everything, right? It, he's basically saying, look, anybody who's too cool, be leery of. And his uncle Mark was always too cool. And then you learn later on all the sort of things that his uncle Mark had done um, and how, though he was a loving brother, he also was who taught their father all the things that there was to learn about the rules and about how to navigate the street and and so forth and so on. He was a part of the perpetuation of of you know this tradition of trauma, um, and it goes on and on and on that way. In terms of the character that was the hardest to write, in the moment like the sort of segment of book that was difficult to write, it was Frick, which is one of the last characters we meet in the story, and the reason why is because it's the only character not directly connected to Will. Frick doesn't know who Will is. And so how do I write a character in a book that is so familiar and so familial, and then we have a character who, is, who has no connection to this kid, but he has to feel real, he has to feel important. And the truth is that the story doesn't work without him. He is the missing piece, and he, is, he does connect all the dots, um, but, he still, but he can't feel like just a function. He has to feel whole. And so to build out that character and to create that moment of, of like, and there's a person that you don't know here. Um, what does that mean, the discomfort of that? And furthermore, uh, the importance um, of that, and that you don't have to know a person to know that they've been affected by the same things you've been affected by. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just affect your family, it affects everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I got to use him to sort of, mm-hmm. to sort of say that. Uh, I'm glad you picked up the anagrams there. I think it's not entirely true to say that the reader does all the work there because I think coming up with them in the first place was, you know, something uh, akin to genius, really. Uh, I had visions of you trying every word under the sun just seeing if you could come up with an amazing pairing. I was thinking there can't be any more anagrams that are so spot on, but you you certainly uh, managed to find them. Uh, Was it just a great big, uh, like, 
puzzle solving exercise or, or do you just have that kind of mind and they're, they're there? <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever give myself the credit of saying I just have that kind of mind. I don't think of myself in that way. But with that being said, I also don't pretend to understand the way that my mind is working. I talk a lot to, to my friends and colleagues who do this work and we always talk about how nobody remembers writing a book. We write it. We're going through this process. It's miserable, right? We're working and working and working. We're trying to... It is much like putting a puzzle together. How do we put the pieces of the puzzle together? And then it ends. You finish it, and it erases itself from your mind. You know, no memories of it. You know, my mother always says that, you know, it's like amnesia after having children. She's like, I don't remember, you know. Like, it's miserable. You have that moment. It's painful. And then all of a sudden, a couple months later, you're like, I I should have another child, right? As if you didn't just go through the most traumatic experience of your life. And, and and, And though writing is nothing like having children, the birthing of a story does feel much like um, there is this sort of wiping of it the moment that it's done. I don't remember any of that. I don't remember where the anagrams came from. I don't remember how it all kind of clicked together that way. And I try not to even think about what's happening up there. It just is kind of doing, thankfully, it just does its job. And, uh, you know, it's my biggest fear, actually. It's one of those things I think about all the time. It's like, please, please just let the the noodle keep noodling, right? Please just let my brain keep doing whatever it is that it's doing, Um, which I think just takes constant and insatiable curiosity about the world. I think the more and the more information I take in, the, the deeper the well I have to pull from. So you can pull those anagrams out, or you can pull out, you know, all sorts of interesting things that you've forgotten that you've learned along the way. Just because I want to know all the things that there are to know, uh, you know. Just before we leave uh, the book itself, I, I wanted if we could say something about the symbolism of the elevator mm. and, and whether that was intentional. So yes, it was intentional. But it were the elevator, much like Will's name, much like eczema in the story, much like the cigarette smoke, much like many of the things in this tale, it has multiple meanings. I mean, number one, the coffin, right? Number two, the elevator, when you think about it, it's a physical structure. It's pretty much like the physical manifestation of a traumatized mind. And, and what I mean is when you think about the elevator, it's cold, steel, metal, right? It's closed in, it's usually pretty small and tight. There's typically, for some of us, there's vertigo involved, right? The feeling of, of being off balance and the feeling of, of moving far faster than, than you would hope or moving slower than you intend. And then lastly, elevators are actually, I mean, they're hanging by a thread. That's trauma. That's what it feels like. Nobody ever experiences pain and says, I feel like I'm in a wide open ocean. They say, I feel like the walls are closing in around me. And then lastly, the elevator, because they're feared objects, People are terrified, right? Elevators are one of those things that many people are terrified to ride. And yet, he has to ride it. Trauma and and pain um, and the acceptance of said pain is something that many of us fear. Death, right? The death of ourselves and let alone the death of our loved ones. It's easier to be in denial. Um, But it's it's a ride that we all have to take at some point, right? One way or another, whether it be the death of a loved one or the death of yourself, it is a ride that we all must go on. Um, and I wanted to use it in that way, too. It's something that is unavoidable, yet terribly feared. Um, and so that's sort of where the elevator comes from. It was all very, very, very intentional. And lastly, I don't know whether when you wrote this book that you thought that it might be illustrated 
um, by the wonderful Chris Priestley, and I think it does bring uh, another dimension to the book. What were your responses when you saw what he'd done with your words and how he'd helped to create? Because it's a unified thing with the illustration. What were your responses to that? You know, people people have spoken about this book in really interesting superlatives. And to me, if it is, as Angie Thomas says, a masterpiece, I think only with Chris Priestley's illustrations. I think I think he took the book to a different space, to another level. I think he was so tasteful in how he decided to depict the images. I think he I think he used such a deft hand and such restraint. I mean, I think it speaks to his genius. I think it speaks to his, his own brilliance. And so I'm grateful that the UK decided to add an extra element without turning it into something trite or contrived, without watering it down, without taking away from the sparseness of it. But instead we can say, here's a way for us to turn it up just a, a bit more to engage the reader even deeper. Yes, I think engagement and the other thing is uh, what it does for pacing because you've already said how through the writing that it has to have this intensity um, and the, the verse novel is helping you do that. I felt that the illustration provided those reflective pauses uh, and I think that did work through, you used the word restraint, I would have used the word economy, it's the same thing by not trying to do too much with it and reining it in. Um, but I thought it worked beautifully in that unified way together. I have to say that it has been such a delight uh, to talk to you today and uh, thank you for joining us in the Reading Corner, Jason. My pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>